I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. There is such an unbelievable amount of violence. There is so much unnecessary hurt that women and children are suffering. They've got to be solutions and they've got to be better solutions and we have to keep trying to find those and that's why I'm sitting here. You may think we're getting close to true gender equality, but even in the parts of the world where that may seem the case, we're not even close. Because everywhere the world over, violence against women is horrifically common. And while violence like this persists, there is no equality. Two of the most prevalent types of violence that women experience are intimate partner violence and non-partner sexual violence. In fact, nearly one in three women have experienced one or both of these forms of violence in their lifetime. But there's a lot more besides female genital mutilation, so-called honour killing, forced marriage, the list goes on and on. The question is, what's driving it and why in this modern world are women still suffering at the hands of men? Finding an answer to these questions and solutions for dealing with the problem is the Sexual Violence Research Initiative, the SVRI. And I am delighted to say the Global Advocacy Director of the SVRI, Aisha Margot, is my guest today. Chapter 1. What works? Whether it's masculine ideals built growing up around sexism in childhood, religious ideologies or mental health issues caused by war and conflict, violence against women begins in many different ways. And the causes differ from country to country, from community to community. So ending it is complex. But the SVRI is committed to finding out what works. Building on our discussion with Dean Peacock just a few episodes ago where we spoke about the importance of taking a feminist approach to peace building, the SVRI is also grounded in feminist principles. Aisha tells us more about the organisation and her role within it. It's the world's largest global network and it's working to advance research on violence against women and violence against children in lower and middle income countries. And we have more than 8,000 members. So the SVRI was established in 2003, and really it was by a passionate group of researchers and practitioners who recognized that there just is terrible inequity in how research for violence against women is funded. And at that point, SVRI was hosted by the World Health Organization. And then people who were working within SVRI realized that it would be better if it was hosted within a lower and middle income country where the biggest burden of violence against women and violence against children is being faced. Um, so it moved to the South African Medical Research Council in 2006. And then finally in 2009, very excitingly, we became established as an independent, feminist, women-led, sort of Southern-based NGO. And what we do at SVRI is basically work to increase research and research resources on violence against women and violence against children in lower and middle income countries. And we do this through four sort of key ways. One is building evidence. So we give grants to support research in lower and middle income countries, and we try to support researchers based in those countries. Um, we strengthen capacity through bespoke training programs for our grantee partners, but also by hosting webinars and events, by running courses that are created collaboratively for the field on issues that the field needs help on. We promote partnerships and organizations working together. 
on some of the really big and challenging issues that the field is facing. And we also bring people together and researchers and practitioners together through the SVRI Forum, which is a really big conference held every two years. And during that time, we, we showcase new research coming in from the field. Um, so for instance, our last one in Mexico brought together 1,021 researchers, practitioners, activists, funders, and policymakers from 99 countries. And we are a field building organization. So what we're trying to do is build the field help the field. We try to influence change and shift thinking, especially in terms of funders and policymakers around why does research matter so much? Why do we need to disrupt the way research is being funded and being done? And my role within the organization is as the global advocacy director. And as that, what I do mostly is, in fact, what I just mentioned around influencing change and shifting the field. And I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more, um, hopefully later, about some of what I do within that and what sort of advocacy SVRI does. Thank you. It's fascinating. I, I feel deeply comfortable that organizations like yours exist. And I don't want to ask a question and answer it myself, but... We seem to know a huge amount about the problem. And I was wondering, why then do we need to continue to fund more research? Is it the case that what works in one location doesn't work somewhere else? Is that accurate? So, Mark, yeah, I mean, that that is such a good question. And I think I'm going to start here. And we hear this a lot. But I think that what I'd like to say here is, yes, we do know a lot. We know a huge amount. And in fact, let's use this as a opportunity to shout out to sort of decades of unbelievable commitment and work done by amazing researchers around the world who have been able to show us that we can, in fact, end violence against women, probably in years, uh, not decades, if we had enough funding, political will and community involvement within that. But that being said, we haven't succeeded in reducing violence to zero anywhere in the world. Many of the effective interventions that we do know about, that we have found out about are small scale. It isn't clear to us yet how these can be brought to scale in order to maximize the impact of the intervention for as many people as possible. And we have so many questions still, you know, how do successful programs work? What is the specific combination of factors that makes a program successful? And this, is particularly important in terms of adapting interventions for different settings, as you mentioned, you know, different populations, different cultural settings. So just as an example, the What Works program, which was the UK funded and, and very large program that was carried out between 2013 and 2019, found, I'll just give one small example. There was a program called Inda Shakirwa, and this worked in Rwanda, and it worked intensively with couples around gender, decision-making, relationships, and it was very successful in one community where the trials found that it actually reduced intimate partner violence by 55%. And it didn't just do that. There were other benefits as well. So depression was reduced, relationships were better, general sense of well-being improved. But when this program was done somewhere else, and then an evaluation was done, it actually found that the program heightened intimate partner violence risk among couples and worsened the well-being among couples. And so this was a big shock, right? And the evaluation showed that specific types of differences actually made a huge difference to the outcome of the program. So project design, duration of the training, the way the communities were engaged with, the ways the project was implemented. For instance, where did they hold the initial conversations? 
Where were the trainings held? How long did the facilitators spend with people? These small differences made an enormous difference to the outcome. And without that follow-up research, we would not have seen those discrepancies and we would not have been able to ensure the future adaptations of the intervention did no harm, which is obviously critical. So I think that's a big thing. You know, we still need to know what are the long-term effects of interventions that seem to be working? What are the specific mechanisms driving the change? And then a whole other area that we don't know about, and that's in addition to what I've been talking about and the scaling up of programs is, how do we integrate violence prevention and response efforts into broader development programs? So educational programs, programs with schools, climate change programs, infrastructural development programs. There's just so much that we still don't know. Chapter two, 56 times. Aisha was kind enough to share some materials with me, and reading the data is both illuminating and extremely depressing, enough to make you think that this is too big of a problem to solve. In the UK, as many as 4% of women have experienced intimate partner violence in the last year. That's more than a million people. And in countries like Afghanistan and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it's higher than 35%. This problem is so pervasive, so hard to tackle. I wondered what keeps Aisha and the SVRI team going, when to me it seems hopeless. They must believe there is a way of solving the issue. On a deeply personal level and I mean, I, I hope you don't mind if I give a deeply personal response to some of this. It's not at all. It is just easier to be involved than not to be involved when there is this huge, complex problem to be solved in the world, you know. And that isn't to say that I, on my own, don't sometimes lose sight of what I'm doing or don't sometimes think, actually, what's the point of all this? You know, the, is this really solvable? But yeah, I, I think there's so much that is positive. I mean, so I had a very visceral experience of this recently, in fact, just at the last SVRI forum, which was in Mexico in 2022 in September. And there was a session there where this very prominent researcher, one of the sort of very early pioneers of the field, was talking about how she entered the field. And it was through healthcare, as it was for many of them in the 70s. Um, a lot of nurses went on to you know, study and do their, their PhDs and she was talking about this study on femicide and risk factors and how physical abuse was one of them. They were looking at statistics around that. And she mentioned seeing this case and as she was looking at all, you know, they used to look at all the police records and stuff. And there was this woman who had come into the emergency room for assistance 56 times before she was killed. And she sought help and was hurt 56 times. And then she was killed. So the system had seen her 56 times, you know, and somehow she, could, she couldn't be helped. And I just found myself sitting in that plenary room, trying to be professional, you know, SVRI staff member, and actually just crying my eyes out. And just at a visceral level, I thought there is such an unbelievable amount of violence. There is so much unnecessary hurt that women and children are suffering. And They've got to be solutions and they've got to be better solutions. And we have to keep trying to find those. And that's why I'm sitting here, right? At the same time, there's lots of empirical evidence as well. So these early studies led to protocols, warning signs, you know, uh, protocols among law enforcement and healthcare workers, how to see if someone is actually being hurt in the home, how to try and help, how to intervene. And then through the work at SVRI, we now know there is so much programming that really works. And that 
is the stuff that makes us all be inspired. And that's what makes us keep wanting to support building better evidence in this space. So, you know, I've already given you the in the Shakira example, but another example in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which I can talk about was, you know, there was a faith-based social norms intervention. It involved religious leaders from the community. It involved community action groups. And they found that this program reduced violence from 69% to 29%. I mean, that's a percentage, but that's hundreds of people who suddenly have a different life and are not facing the same kind of hurt and violence in their home. And that's obviously of benefit to women and children and men and adults and parents and everyone, right? The entire community. Another one in Uganda, a community-based social norms program where community activists who specifically looked at the imbalance of power between men and women and gender inequality, that reduced violence in, in the intervention communities by 52%. So I think we know that certain core components are working. That's the stuff we know, you know. It's programs that address gender inequality. It's programs that are conducted over a longer period of time. It's where we have well-trained and supported facilitators, participatory approaches, a strong theory of change for the program. So we know that core components are there that make programs work. And that gives us hope. And we see it can be done. We see it being done. And... I think that's what keeps us all in the game. You have developed an extremely comprehensive advocacy toolkit. I wondered <laughs> if you could talk a little bit about who's using that and how is it how is it helping? Because this has to be more than just you and your organization. We have to have people out there on the ground using things so that we know that they work. Is that what the toolkit was designed to do to almost provide a comprehensive way of doing this for yourself wherever wherever you are in the world? Actually, no, that's not really what our toolkit is about. We designed the toolkit as a response to um, funding issues, so to the extreme inequity around research on violence being properly funded. So just to throw out a figure, I mean, in 2016, the global cost of violence was estimated to be 1.5 trillion US dollars. And yet the development aid of all the overseas development aid, about 0.002% was actually invested in preventing violence. And of this, a tiny little proportion of that 0.002% was devoted to research to find out what works and what doesn't work. And then of the research that is being done, you know, it's fragmented, it's often project-based, the agendas are being set by donors, it's short-term, the, the, the right voices aren't being heard in what research should be funded. So we looked at this and then we looked at what we're up against, which is what we call the sort of gender restrictive groups who are our opponents. Right. And they are supported in unbelievable ways, Mark. I mean, they have large, long term, up to 50 year long, millions of dollars, flexible grants. And because they're funded in that way, those sorts of lobbying groups can take risks. They can develop long term strategies. They can adapt very quickly to different political and social events. And these are the groups that are fighting to clamp down on reproductive rights, gender equality, like sex education in schools, women getting equal pay, better legislation for violence. I mean, anything that you can imagine that is sort of against women's rights and against everything that we do is how is what these groups are being funded to do. So we look at what we're up against and we're like, OK, we really need to fight this fight around what needs to be funded, how it needs to be funded, who needs to be funded. And, and, and a lot of our advocacy and our influencing change work is around that. So, you know, just quickly, we have a tracking funding study that's basically saying fund more because what's out there is way too scarce. 
and what does exist is clustered in high-income countries, or it's given to projects run by researchers in high-income countries. But we know the biggest need and burden of violence is in low-income countries, and we need locally-led, contextually-informed research to be funded. Then we have the sort of what to fund. You know, we have the Global Shared Research Agenda, which is work that SVRI has done with partners. We also have a bunch of regional and topic-specific priority setting exercises. And these use a very consultative participatory methodology to literally crowdsource research priority areas and questions. So that's about what to fund. That's saying, listen to the field and fund what they are saying is a priority. So that you're answering the questions that really need to be answered by the communities on the ground across the globe, not what someone in a high income country institution is sort of thinking, ah, oh, this would be so interesting to know. So that's around the what to fund. And then we have the ethical funding stuff, which is around how to fund. And what we mean by that is there's a specific way of funding equitable partnerships or funding in communities in ways that will benefit and include and will not lose sight of historically marginalized communities, funding in ways where your application processes are fair, your selection processes are fair, what are you prioritizing? How do you form trusting and transformative relationships that will lead to the most effective research, but also to the biggest impact for women and children on the ground? So that's really what our advocacy toolkit is about. That's what we're trying to use it for. You talked about education earlier, and I was pleased to hear that. And I'm guessing this is a difficult question to answer because the world is so very different, as you've already articulated. But we're not doing enough, are we, to teach young boys that this is a problem and that they have a role in trying to solve it because we tend to have this lazy boys will be boys approach to life we have to stop that we have to get much more prescriptive is that how how important do you think education is to solving this problem absolutely hugely enormously important i 100% agree i mean boys will be boys is really that that entire statement needs to be banished. I mean, boys will be what we teach them to be, right? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. And it's not just about boys, it's about girls. And I think we know now that what we need is to really question patriarchy and the gender roles that are entrenched in society. And that in fact, make boys think that it's okay to hit a girl or it's okay to feel entitled to have sexual power over a girl. And we need to address all of that with boys, but we also need, we also need to address it with girls. So yes, in all the stuff that they consume and all the stuff that that they do, I mean, we need to also make sure that every single thing we do challenges these toxic ideas around masculinity and gender inequality. So again, I'll give you an example of a research study that was done recently in India, and it was in fact with boys, and it was around engaging boys to somehow reduce violence against girls. And the boys kind of during the study showed that they strongly felt themselves to be superior. They felt totally entitled to control girls and control their decisions. They supported girls' education, interestingly, but the reason for that was so that girls can be better wives and mothers. They were like, but teasing and catcalling is not harassment and violence, but they saw that rather as an expression of their own masculinity. You know, so there, there were all these interesting contradictions that actually came out during that program. And it's obviously they've had to find ways. How do they focus on gender inequality? How do they encourage boys to critically reflect on sexuality, on violence, on sex, on masculinity? We know that the work has to be done at institutional and ideological levels. Chapter three, our role. 
During discussions like these, I like to consider the role the arts can play to help address and solve the issues at hand. But it's also important to look at the damage that the arts can cause to highlight how unhelpful portrayals of issues like violence against women can make matters worse and actually perpetuate the problem rather than solve it. Among the troubling portrayals of female characters and the use of sexual violence in film and television, there's also the issue of the adult entertainment industry. There's a new documentary on Netflix right now about the porn site Pornhub, and it uncovers how much of the content is violent and not necessarily approved by the person in the video. Many people are witnessing violence against women regularly without even realising it. But while there are many examples I can share of the arts making things worse, we can help. If you think about it, what the SVRI are doing is telling stories, engaging with people at an emotional and intellectual level. That's the role of the arts. So is storytelling part of the solution? It's a very interesting question. And I think we, again, we don't really have the research to show either what the impact of the very negative content is, or in fact, what the impact of could be of, you know, of really positive content and, and stuff that's coming out that is trying to create honest and good portrayals of things. I think one of the things that could be really helpful is to get away from the sort of stereotypical tropes of, so, so we do see films on violence, right, where the battered woman or the beaten woman becomes a martial arts specialist and then takes a brutal and violent revenge on everyone around her and that becomes you know the the big adventure story and I just think those are so unhelpful because obviously that's not really you know something that most women are going to be able to live or do I think we need more complex and very nuanced portrayals of the factors that are involved because as you're saying storytelling can can make things resonate with another human being so you know, why do people perpetrate violence? Why do people stay in violent relationships? What are the gray areas? What are the warning signs and the risk factors? And I think there's there have been one or two really interesting sort of TV series around this. I'm thinking specifically of this Netflix series called The Maid, which has actually been very popular. And what I thought was interesting, because I watched it with a specific critical lens, and I thought it was very honest, one, about the hurdles that you need to face. And obviously, it's in a very specific, you know, higher income country context. But, you know, what are the hurdles you need to face when you don't have the financial resources to leave a violent relationship? But also, it dealt with emotional and verbal abuse. And these are often underrepresented. So it shows the impact of that. It shows the nuanced realizations of the main character as she realizes that she is facing violence and that this is a situation she needs to escape from. It gives the idea around how violence can escalate. And just from anecdotal reading that I've done and reviews that I've read about it and commentary, it does seem to have resonated with women who have consumed this content in a very interesting way where they've said, oh my goodness, we've seen a lot that is our story and it's given us different ideas around how to deal with it and it's been incredibly helpful to see this on screen so i think you know content like that is is really interesting there's a brilliant podcast called the trap which is again i think doing a really good job it's it, it's from australia and it, it's very powerful it exposes the systemic nature of violence against women it shows how coercive control works, how intimate partner violence works. And as a listener, you really, really begin to understand what 
individual women face in the home and it also looks at solutions so it's a really really good piece of journalism and it really does ask questions that are at the heart of things like why doesn't she leave you know what is violence how do you how do you understand how lesser acts of abuse can lead and escalate to chronic and severe violence and it also looks at how violence is embedded and sustained by our public systems and how the solutions you know are not always where you think they will be that's fascinating and i'm i'm delighted to hear that there are helpful mm. outlets that the industry is is providing but this when you, you described it as systemic, and I'm really, I'm, I'm both delighted and horrified that you did, because you are right to call it systemic. And often toxic masculinity is systemic, and we don't know enough about it. And we hear a lot about male privilege all of the times. And very often, you know, there is a very famous phrase, which is, if all you've ever known is privilege, then the slightest opposition feels like oppression, which again makes the problem worse and this merry-go-round just never ends and it and it is it is systemic but i think that organizations like yours seem to be in for the long haul right this is not a short-term fix as you've said you haven't reduced the levels of violence to zero anywhere in the world which is a staggering staggering statistic to come to come up with and i think Mm. that we all have to be in it for the long haul and very often the smallest amount of education about an issue can move the needle significantly what you're trying to do from what it sounds like is you're trying to fund the research to find out which bit of the needle we can move and what works here and why is that right absolutely i mean absolutely we're trying to what we're trying to do most of all is to find out what works you know what are the most effective interventions that can be planned how can those interventions be scaled up so that they impact as many people as possible in as many places as possible what are the different nuances and contextual realities we need to take into account and how can we eventually end violence for all women and all children around the world you know because that's the ultimate goal but one of the things to remember is we know i mean svri can't do this on their own no one person can no one organization can no one sector can it requires just a massive commitment from you know from everybody actually from multiple sectors working together collaborating together planning together funding together and just never ever giving up Thank you for not giving up. I think the SBRI is an outstanding organization and the world needs more people like you and your colleagues in it. Aisha Margot, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Aisha Margot for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? We often talk about using your work to highlight issues or causes you feel strongly about, to channel your rage. But remember, if you want to speak to various different communities, social groups, or even countries, effective communication may mean adapting what you say and how you say it from time to time. Education is critical to ending violence against women, and people emulate the content they consume. So wherever possible, challenge the prevailing ideals of toxic masculinity in your writing. And finally, think of the stories you can tell to help bring attention to the issue of violence against women, but consider the nuance and keep your storytelling honest and grounded. People need to be able to relate to issues like these in order to engage with them. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Grout Show Club in London, titled Inside Stories. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.